Anyway, it's lovely to see you all. I recognise most people. If you don't know me, my name's Paul. I'm one of the uh, Connect Group leaders in the church. And if you're not in a Connect Group, I really encourage you to uh, join one of those. It's just a way of getting to know people. They get to know you. Uh, you really, it helps you really feel part of church. So really encourage you to do that um, if you can. Um, so we're continuing in our Luke series. I was talking to Ian about this the other day. And I was saying, how long have we been doing Luke? Because it feels like forever. And he says, well, it'll take us three years in total. So it feels like the start of Star Trek. If you know Star Trek, where they kind of talk about our five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, it feels like it's our three-year mission to complete one gospel. Well, I think we're going to get there. Uh, today, we're just going to look at a few verses. And then we've got the, uh, really looking forward to Jesus and his team and the summer series on uh, 1 Samuel. Really excited about what is in store for us over the next few weeks. So uh, get signed up. Uh, as Steve says, and we'll see you in the building for that. But today, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22. So if you've got a Bible, or you've got a phone, or a tablet, or something, then get looking at that. And I'm just going to do a quick recap of the previous chapter, where we've been in Luke. Um, and there are just two stories we're going to look at uh, today, and I'm conscious of the weather, so um, we'll try to keep it succinct. Anyway, Luke 21. We've if you recall, Jeeves and Ian have uh, served us really well in explaining uh, that chapter and how it's kind of the last part of Jesus' teaching. And what does he do? He does two things, really. One is he calls out a widow and her, how she's genuinely generous with her offering. And then he contrasts that with the rich people and the kind of big shots in the religious com Jewish community in Jerusalem and how their kind of generosity is pretty fake because they're looking like they're giving loads of money, but actually that's just their surplus. There's no pain involved for them, really. They're just giving their surplus, not everything, whereas the widow is giving everything. So that was one part of Jesus' teaching, and that would have started to frustrate the um, authorities. And then his second bit of teaching really frustrates them even more and annoys them even more because he starts to talk about really big stuff doesn't he he had really got into that um explaining about how god was in the full sweep of history from the beginning of time to the end of time and that jesus came to break into history and to be the start of those end times teaching that ian talked about and that also annoyed the jewish authorities because it was challenging their nice little number that they got going, where they were using the law of Moses to control the people. They had their nice position, they got God in a box, and they were using it to control the people in a religious sense. They were leaving the Roman authorities to control the people in a secular sense, and they got a nice position and a nice number in this life, and they didn't want Jesus coming along and um, knocking over the apple cart, if you like. So that's where we've got to today as we pick up the story. We've got this tension building between the chief priests and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law on one hand, who are very much about the present and the now and their status and things of this world and the present, and Jesus who's teaching a very different kingdom. And he's telling people to live radically and differently and to live about the future, not about the present. 
but he does it in a balanced way. He says, you've got to be ready because the the end will come suddenly and you won't expect it. So you've got to be prepared. But he also balances that with don't be fixated about it. But live your life ready for that fact. But live your life now and, and make a difference now where you are. And that's that's true for us as well as for the people in Jerusalem at the time. So that chapter ends with some important geography. Jesus is teaching in the temple and he's spending the night in the Mount of Olives. But as we'll see, that causes a bit of a problem for the um, for the Jewish authorities. But we're going to read, that's the recap. So we're going to read chapter 22. Let's just pray before we read and ask God to continue to be in our meeting. Wow, he's been in our meeting. In fact, some of the things that have already been brought are in my notes, so it's going to be a lot shorter now because I, <laughs> I don't need to do it again. God is really speaking to us today. Father God, we pray as you come now. It's hot and it's been a, a long day and maybe we're uh, a bit hot and bothered and tired and, and whatever. Help us, Lord, now just to be ready, be expectant to hear from you as we look at your word. Thank you, God, that you've given us your word. Thank you that you've brought us to Luke chapter 22 today. Pray for each person here that you would speak to them at their point of need through your living word. Thank you that it's alive and it will speak to us today. Amen. So let's look at Luke chapter 22. We're going to see this confrontation between the Jewish authorities and Jesus start to really come out. So Luke chapter 22 verse 1. Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Wow, well that's certainly <coughs> an infamous passage, isn't it? And if probably if you talk to your uh, mate at school or your colleague at work or even somebody on the school gate maybe and you ask them, can you name some people in the Bible? Judas is probably one that they would name, isn't it? It's a kind of name that's pretty infamous down history and actually it's it's a really strong word to use against someone. So there's been a lot of press coverage, hasn't there, about the England penalty takers. And I guess there's probably Judas was probably a word that was used really unhelpfully on social media against them, wasn't it? It's a really strong word. Or when I was growing up at university, there was a huge debate about the miners' strike. And when people crossed the picket line, they were being shouted at and they were being called all sorts of things, including Judas. It's a really strong word because it means betrayal or you've you've betrayed a confidence or you're you're a traitor it's a really strong word isn't it even now it's a word that um you know it just has such strong negative um connotations and we're going to see well i'm just going to unpack these verses in a minute but before i do that i just want to use an analogy because it's quite useful as we're going through the story about um board games i don't know if you like board games as a family Mentioning board games in the middle of high summer is probably not the most natural thing to do. <laughs> it's the sort of thing you do at Christmas, isn't it? Or over New Year or whatever. You hunker down inside when it's cold and you're playing a board game. Today is probably not the best day to relate to a board game. In our house, so my wife Karen and my two sons, 
they play a game in our house called Oswaldia. Now, you won't have heard of this. This is a game that my wife, Karen, has created, and she's kind of been developing it over about the last 25 years. And the only way I could describe it is it's kind of a cross between Lord of the Rings and Monopoly. Um, yeah, I can see I've got, I've got somebody to market it to now. But okay, anyway, this game literally goes on for days. It's great in lockdown. The, the kids have been playing it for, the latest version has been playing for weeks on the, uh, I have to have a spare table for it. It takes that long. Uh, but the interesting thing about the game is I, I literally, I don't get involved. I, pres I supply tea, coffee, drinks, biscuits, but I don't get involved in this game because it's just, it sucks too much time. But I'm always sort of listening in on what's going on in the lounge as they're playing this. And there's, there's people who are up and they think they're going to win and then they're down and then they're losing. And then there's a twist and the third player suddenly comes into the game and it doesn't seem to have, it, it ebbs and flows massively. And as we're going to see in this story, <coughs> there are ebbs and flows in the story. Now, the first thing to know about this story is that the, the, the chief priests and the, the teacher of the law had a problem because they had this guy, Jesus, who was teaching things that they didn't want to teach because, as we said before, it was going against their worldview and their status. But they couldn't pin him down. They didn't know where he was at night time. And they also knew they couldn't arrest him during the day because that was likely to create a riot because he was becoming more and more popular in Jerusalem. But they had an additional problem. So they're coming up towards the Feast of Unleavened Bread that lasts for 10 days and Passover when Jerusalem, the population of Jerusalem, was going to triple. So suddenly they've got this populist preacher, population is tripling, and in the days before social media, word of mouth is really important. He's going to get really popular. So they've got a problem. They've got a guy who's a problem. He's getting more popular, and he's going to get more popular because of this feast. How do we sort this out? So at this point in the game, they're kind of thinking, we're a bit snookered. What are we going to do? And then they kind of like roll a six, don't they? Because suddenly they get a person in Jesus' inner circle, sorry, Jesus' inner circle, who comes along and says, I can tell you where he is. So you can go and arrest him at night time when there's nobody around and there won't be a fuss. And they suddenly thought, wow, this is amazing. And actually, if you look in the passage, we did, not only did they, uh, they were delighted, they actually agreed to give him money. And we read in one of the other Gospels, it was a lot of money. It was 30 silver coins, which is like six weeks wages for a labourer at the time, or the price of a slave. So it was a huge amount of money. Wow. So the thing has totally turned around. It looks like the Jewish authorities have really uh, got themselves into a really good position. So then the question is, why did Judas do what he did? Why did suddenly this person in Jesus' inner circle change his mind and essentially change sides? Well, if you look at verse 3, there's a really strong language in verse 3. It says, Satan entered him. Well, that sounds pretty scary, and I think Luke's written that deliberately to be scary because he wants to give a sense that Jesus has stopped partnering with the Holy Spirit and has let the enemy in. Now, as always, Ian gives me this large pile of books to read to make sure that I've got reading all these Bible commentaries. So I work my way through, even the thick one I read through this time, Ian. Uh, Mr. Bock, who seems to write forever on Luke, quite extraordinary uh, particular Bible. Anyway, 
all the Bible commentators are quick to point out that it's a bit simplistic to sort of suggest that this, oh, that means Judas was demon-possessed. And they say, we can't be, there's nothing in here to tell us that that's definitely the case. And we don't know precisely what motivates Judas to betray Jesus, but we can make some educated guesses. So if you know anything about Judas, you know, he was the treasurer and he was kind of the keeper of the purse strings for Ju Jesus and his followers. But we do So why was he, why did he betray him? Well, maybe he was frustrated at where Jesus was going. He seemed to be heading for Jerusalem and a showdown and was going to lose. And Judas didn't like perhaps the idea of being on the losing side. Or perhaps it was more that Jesus never, sorry, Judas never believed in Jesus. So in John chapter 6, Jesus said to his disciples, yet there are some of you who do not believe. And then John, the gospel writer, really spells it out for us because he says, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. So Jesus already knew, which is pretty amazing. And yet he carried on discipling Judas, even though he knew it wasn't going to end well for him. And there's another story in John chapter 12 when Jesus is anointed with perfume. In fact, it says he was anointed with a pint of perfume. It's an awful lot of perfume. And Judas objects, and his argument sounds actually quite plausible because he says that the perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. And that all sounds really quite worthy. But interestingly, again, John, the gospel writer, adds, Judas did not say this because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And as the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. So perhaps greed was a motive, or unbelief in Jesus as the Son of God, or both, or all sorts of things. Anyway, this Judas is clearly a complex character, and he's not entirely what he seems. Whatever those motives, Satan's got impetus here now, hasn't he? And he's got Jesus a bit cornered, and Satan is back in the story. If you recall, back in Luke chapter 4, uh, Jesus is tempted in the desert and he resists the devil and then at the end of the chapter there are these ominous words the devil left him until an opportune time so the devil was waiting because he was looking for an opportunity to thwart God's purposes and even now the devil is always looking for opportunity to thwart God's purposes to bless his people and a bit further on in chapter 22 beyond where we get today it's a nightmarish prospect, this idea of the devil winning. And Jesus actually says, when he gets arrested, this is your hour when darkness reigns. And that's a um, not a nice prospect at all. But if we think about Jude, Judas and what that meant to Jesus. So he's got this guy, he's, he's discipled him. He's made him one of his uh, inner twelve. He's uh, sh seen everything that Jesus has done in saving people, in healing them, in all the way through Galilee. Jesus helped train the 72 in Luke chapter 10. So he's seen the power of Jesus at first hand, and yet he still decides to switch sides. And Phil Moore puts it better than me. It's an amazing quote in uh, Phil Moore's book on Luke. By choosing the path of money instead of the death and resurrection pathway, Judas trades in happiness for misery, significance for infamy, obedience for rebellion, and heaven for hell. 
And somewhere else I read that acts of betrayal always eat away at your self-esteem and your sense of dignity. And that was true for Judas. Judas and you, you know later in the story it really doesn't end well for him. So this first part of the chapter ed that we looked at today ends with th things not looking good for Jesus, doesn't it? He's in a one of his inner circle have betrayed him. The chief priests are scheming. They seem to be winning. They've got a way to arrest him privately. And interestingly, they've also got a buffer for their own sinful actions because they can say, it wasn't us, Gov, it was this Judas guy who betrayed him. So it's quite clever. They've got a way of justifying their actions. So what's G God saying to you in that first verses that I've read and tried to unpack? Maybe there's a question for some of you about what buffer are you using to justify things that you shouldn't be doing? I had to react. They were calling me names. Everyone else fiddles their expenses. Why can't I do it? It wasn't my fault I looked at the dodgy video. The YouTube video feed popped up and it looked interesting. We always find a way to justify stuff, don't we? And God doesn't like that and he tells us not to. And interestingly, when we were uh, God speaking to us during the worship time, uh, Ian used the idea of God disciplines those he loves. Perhaps he wants to, perhaps God's prompting you about something there. And then more directly of this passage is, have you ever breached a confidence? Why did you do that? Was it unresolved conflict? What reward did you get from doing it? And perhaps most importantly, have you repented of what you did? Or perhaps you're on the other end, on the receiving end. Has someone betrayed your confidence? What lessons did you learn from that experience? Have you freed the offender from what they did? Because if you haven't, they still got control. And you need to forgive them and hand it over to God because God is the ultimate ruler and judge and he sorts it out. So let him do that. Don't you try and do it. So just as we finish the first part of the passage, let's just take a moment and perhaps one of those questions really nudged you. That's God nudging you, not me. That's God nudging me. Father God, pray that you come now and nudge us where we need to be nudged. Tell us where we need to repent. Tell us where we need to ask someone for forgiveness or where we need to forgive someone. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so let's move to the second part of the story where thankfully it gets a little bit more positive and slightly more lighthearted as well because I think there's bits of this story that are actually quite funny. So we get to the Last Supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. So Luke kind of, we kind of changed scene, don't we, if you like. We've gone from this really dark story about um, the scheming uh, chief priests, Judas's betrayal, and then we've got a very different kind of practical story about Jesus getting ready for the Passover. 
And interestingly, while the chief priests are scheming and they've got authority, they're not really in control of events. They're reacting. Jesus here is really deliberately preparing for Passover, even though he's in this really frenzied place of lots of people are interested in him. He's got this confrontation coming with these chief priests, but he's deliberately preparing for the Passover because he knows it's the right thing to do because he knows that's part of the Jewish year and it's about uh, a genuine act of remembrance of how Israel was delivered from Egypt. If you recall in Exodus 12, it's the story about the Passover where the angel of death comes and it brings death to Egypt but not to Israel because they've been told by God to put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. So it's the Passover is a way is it's a really key feast in the Jewish year to celebrate God's deliverance through the blood of the lamb. So Jesus gives some specific instructions to Peter and John who are two of his most trusted disciples. And the instruction is to follow a man carrying water. Now, that doesn't seem particularly odd to us, but it would have seemed really odd to Peter and John because men didn't carry water. Only women carried water. So you can imagine Peter and John thinking, but we won't find a man doing that because they don't. What's Jesus on about here? This is nonsense. This isn't going to happen. And there are times in our lives where we can think, God can't do that. It's not possible. And then we list reasons why he can't do it, don't we? We kind of work it out in our head intellectually. We go, no, that isn't going to work. I certainly do that at times. But there's no record here of Peter and John questioning the instruction. They just do, they basically do what they're told. Now, why is that? So uh, this is just me speculating. This isn't any of the big books, actually. This is just me. But perhaps they remember when they first met Jesus. And if you remember back in Luke 4, well, Peter in particular is a professional fisherman and he knows that he should be fishing at night time because that's when the fish will bite. He hasn't caught anything all night. Jesus sees him in the broad daylight, on a sunny day like this, and Jesus says, go out there and throw your nets over the side. And Peter's going, but that doesn't work like that. That is not how you fish in Galilee. But he does what Jesus says and there's this massive catch of fish. So perhaps he remembered that and thought, actually, Jesus is worth listening to and trusting because I can remember back to that story. Or more recently, contemporary to this story we're reading now, the chapter before, there's a similar story where they have to go and find a donkey for Jesus to come into town on. And again, it's the, in, in a slightly um, very specific instructions. But the key point is, Peter and John trust Jesus and they do what he says and it turns out as Jesus says. And what's also amazing is they don't just find the man carrying the water jar, they find a room, an accommodation to have the Passover meal at a time when there was no room, you know, we're back to like no room in the end at the Christmas story, there's no room in Jerusalem because it's Passover and yet there's this room available for them to use. Now maybe that was a miracle, some people think maybe it was that Jesus had actually pre-booked and he was just getting Peter and John to confirm up the instructions. We don't know. But the point is, Peter and John trusted Jesus again and again. They carried on trusting him. They didn't stop trusting. And uh, Karen and I were discussing this a bit yesterday because I was sort of batting around the, the story at home. 
and we were thinking a bit about it's pretty amazing isn't it that we pray about things and then when god answers the prayer we're a bit kind of amazed and we're not surprised maybe we are surprised we're certainly amazed aren't we that god answers the prayer and yet we think back and think but god does answer prayers he's answered our prayers before why are we so shocked when he answers perhaps it's our memory is a bit uh, ropey Karen's much better than me because she keeps a journal and she looks back and she can remember what um, what God's done. Um, so maybe that's a tip for us to um, help us with our memory. So let's pull this together. Two contrasting stories here. In the first, we've got these chief priests. They're scheming and they're conniving. They've got power and authority, but they're not really in control. In the second, Jesus is not flustered. He knows his father God's got it in hand and he knows he's got this confrontation coming but he's still going to prepare and celebrate the Passover because that's the right thing to do in the first story Judas actions reveal his true character and that was that he wasn't really a true follower of Jesus but in the second Peter and John they show their true character that they've got constancy of faith and they're going to keep trusting Jesus. And because they keep trusting him, they build up that record bank of, I know I can trust this man because he does what he says he's going to do. And both the stories show that this confrontation that's coming is more than just chief priests versus Jesus. It's powers of darkness versus the kingdom of light. What are your actions like? Do they show you to be a true believer of Jesus? Or are you kind of giving him the bits around the edge, but not, not everything? Now, that's a bit provocative. Um, but Jesus wants people to be wholehearted followers of his. He doesn't want just bits of you in a box marked, God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, use it in emergency. He wants you to give him everything and to trust him with everything in your life. And at the moment, in these kind of weird times that we live in, that Steve was alluding to, that kind of like tomorrow is supposed to be back to normal, but it's not really normal. And we see things on the news that are a bit kind of, that's weird or that's concerning me or that the media are kind of making us flip between. It's all okay, so it's all awful and back again. God we need Jesus more than ever. In fact, Jesus is our hope, and he's what stops us flip-flopping between one extreme and the other. He helps us to see beyond the present to what's to come, to what Jesus was teaching about in Luke 21, that God's got it all in his hand. He's got the beginning and the end, and he knows how the story ends, and it isn't with the powers of darkness winning, it's with God winning. That God is in control. He's in control of the pandemic. He's in control of your life. He's in control of my life, if we'll let him. So, just to finish, let's, yeah, get vaccinated. Brilliant things. Yes, take all reasonable precautions. But don't let fear have a stronghold in the coming weeks and months as the pandemic continues, and it may well continue. That's how we are beacons of light and hope for those around us because we, we tap into the resources of heaven. We tap into 
that story of beginning and end that we're part of because Jesus broke in, changed history and changed us. Let's just finish with a prayer. Thank you, God, for your word. That it teaches us, it challenges us, it stretches us, but it encourages us. Pray, God, now that whatever I've said today has been your words and that it's spoken to people here. Lord, I pray that that would go deep into their heart. That you'd be prompting people maybe to repent of something, to change something, to ask you to be more in control, to trust you wholeheartedly. That you bless everyone here, that we can be a blessing to those around us that we see this week. That we can be beacons of hope and light and be pointing the way to you, Jesus. Because people need you. Thank you, God. Amen.